Niels Brabant helps managers to become better leaders. He's an international expert on sustainable leadership and in, is in business since 1998. Growing up in small village in northern Germany, he moved on to living in Hamburg, Berlin, London, and now in London and Spain, the Canaries. Ooh, great. He published multiple books and runs the Leadership Podcast, a podcast which has more than 25,000 listeners from 40 countries in its first year. Oh, well, that's great. Today, he will talk about the impact of sustainable leadership on organization and businesses. Hello and welcome, Niels. Hello, thank you very much for having me here. You're welcome. So, Niels, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who was the little Niels? Well, the Little Eels grew up in northern Germany. I um, come from a family which has a background in public administration. So my family worked for the state. My father did, my sister does. So it's a bit of a family tradition going on there. What I did after I went to school, I studied to become a teacher, which in, in Germany means you have a very safe job, a well-paid job, and a job which is a lifetime assignment. So you are hired for life because you work for the state. I realized quickly during my studies that I like to teach. However, I am not a big fan of working for the state. It looked, it, it just seemed to be very inefficient, very slow, very, very much focused on the administration process rather than getting things done and delivering the best results. So I decided to go for free enterprise, first worked for a pharmaceutical company, then worked for the largest Microsoft partner for learning solutions, traveled a lot, um, got a couple of awards for my training and coaching delivery. That also where I realized that the real difference in what you do, not only when I was led by other people, but also when I led people in different projects, leadership is the most important aspect of what you have in business and what you do. Number one reason why people leave organizations still is leadership. I left organizations due to bad leadership and joined organizations due to good leadership. I publish books, as you already said, and they are also available for free because the, uh, these are scientific papers and science is relying on publishing it available to anyone. So if anyone here listening is on ResearchGate or on academia.edu, just follow me there and read my scientific papers. Everything I do, and we now know each other for a lot of years, we met in Paris, in Washington, all these conferences where, where we met and spoke. Everything I do is based on science. And it's very important for me also to bring the science into a practical solution. So not only talk about the theory, but how to do and deliver it in practice. And of course, in, a, in an, I hope at least quite entertaining way. Yes, of course. Can you give us maybe a few tips on what's bad leadership and what's good leadership? Well, we have a couple of myths going on when it comes to leadership. And one of the worst myths we still have is that people think there is some sort of checklist. When you look into the book market, for example, basically every month, nearly every week, a, a book comes on the market which always has the same title. It means X steps to Z, whatever you want to do. So seven steps to become a better leader, 12 steps for better project management, 13 steps for better negotiations. It is not that easy because if there were only a couple of steps to be better, someone would have written that book 50 years ago. We all read it and we all would be amazing leaders. However, <laughs> when we look into leadership, we have severe issues. When you look into um, senior leadership areas, KPMG's chairman recently had to step down. BT Communications 
um, the the owner and founder had to step down due to inappropriate re remarks and and due to that also bad leadership. I am not even getting into um, what happened with certain French presidents in the past who were leaders and now have to face court. And bad leadership always is when people think they have, and that is very important now, when they do not have a situative approach. It is, it is absolutely possible that within the same organization, you go to one department and one person where you have to be very straightforward and very fact-oriented, and you go next door to another department to another person, and the leadership style has to be very soft, very indirect, and very much focused on the idea and the concept of the job rather than the task itself. Many people still think there is one leadership style. And, and, and unfortunately, many business schools still teach that they say, find your leadership style and then just do it. And that simply means you have a style and people have to adopt to your style. But this is not how the business world today works. We have a shortage of talent. So we as leaders, and the concept is called servant leadership, we as leaders have to serve with a situative approach to leadership which simply means, and that is the second uh, very important aspect, we have to know what really motivates people. Some people call it the inner mission, and then, of course, people think, oh, is it spiritual? No, it's not. It can be for some, but for many, it's not. What is it that really motivates you? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? And, of course, you cannot ask for the inner mission because you will never get an honest response. When you go to a, let's say, in France, a Cacarond company, so top 40 company in the country, when you ask anyone in the company what, the, what really motivates you, they will always say, I want to be a part and contribute to the company's success because they know that is what their leaders like to hear. But many people have a very different motivation. For some, it's family. For some, it's friends. For some, it's vacation. For some, it's spare time. For some, it's flexibility, where to work and when to work. For some people, it's money. However, not many people have money as their final motivation. So first step for better leadership is be situative. So don't be one of these people who say, I have a style and people have to adopt to it. Second one, focus on the motivation of the people. You have to know what really drives them. And the third one is a really practical skill. You have to distinguish between transactional and transformational leadership. And none of them is better or worse, because I often read that people say transformational leadership is the future and we don't need transactional at all. There is no evidence for that in science. Of course, when you see the difference, because first we have to know what the difference is. And I'll just give you a very brief insight because I could talk about that for, for hours. <laughs> Very briefly said, transactional leadership is based on saying what has to be done. So when you, for example, have um, you have a, 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 a bunch of sand somewhere and you say, OK, please take the shovel and put the sand on this lorry by just putting it on there. So the big advantage is people will do exactly what you want and they will do it the way you told them. The disadvantage is maybe there was a better solution, but no one told you. Uh, also, when they have the job done, what will they do? Most likely, they will wait until the next order from you comes. And if, if there is no order, they won't do anything. So transactional always is has, has the big advantage of you know exactly what's happening because you are in control. And this is why many leaders like it. However, many people like to work transformational. Transformational leadership means that people know what to do without that you tell them. They understood the idea and the concept of the job and their position 
they have in that organization. You need, of course, qualify people, train people well, deliver great onboarding with everything you do. However, it doesn't only have advantages. When you, of course, think people work on their own, that's great. Well, it can have disadvantages. So, for example, someone might have an idea and put something in place which you don't want to be in place. Or they start certain ideas, and this starts a discussion in the organization, a discussion you don't want to have because it distracts from the goal you have right now in mind. So as a very basic first setting, when you want to become a better leader, be situative. There is no checklist that is ever going to help you. Step number two is always look at the motivation of the people. What's their inner mission? What really drives them? And they most likely will tell you after years in a very informal setting and not in a formal setting. Um, and the third one is you, you must be able to distinguish between transactional and transformational leadership. Because if you do not, you simply only choose the one you like the most. But very important in leadership, it is not about you. It is never about you. It is always about the people you lead, which is why you should stick to a concept which is called servant leadership. That is just a very brief, a very brief summary of of one part of what better leadership can be. Often people choose people who like who look like them. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. really a bad thing to do because then you don't have the right leadership team, right? Exactly. So when you look, for example, and um, so what you refer to is called isomorphism. And isomorphism, iso is Greek for, for equal, uh, more for looking similar. And we see that, unfortunately, all over the economy. You normally have, uh, when you look on the board levels, highest level in the organizations, the, the typical leader today still is white, male, cisgender, heterosexual, often married with children. And this is not only because often people say, oh, men are the problem. That's not what I'm going to say. It can be a completely different factor. If we, for example, look into France, most of your politicians, for whatever reason, come from the, I think it's the Ecole Supérieure, uh, the Ecole Normale Supérieure d'Administration. So you have one university having so much influence. And of course, people who already are in power will try to get other people in power from exactly, exactly the same university. We have the same issue with in, in the US, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, UCLA, et cetera, et cetera. We have Oxford and Cambridge in France. Um, this problem exists way less, for example, in Germany, due to the history of Germany, basically with the need to rebuild the country in, after the 1940s. However, universities try to get into power and to build their networks. The problem is when you hire people who are like you, it feels good for you, but innovation will fall flat. You won't see issues that are blindingly obvious to anyone else because you think there is no issue. And you always see the issue when it escalates, but then it's too late. And then you have to focus on the PR, the employer brand, how you reduce employee turnover, raise employee motivation, which is always connected with massive investments into the organization. Investments which could have been profit if you were a better leader in the first place. So diversity, is a very important issue. And I mean true diversity, which is not only about male, female, there are a lot more factors connected to the whole concept of diversity. Yes, would you recognize the difference between women leadership and men leadership? Um, we there's no scientific evidence that we can say men are like this and women are like that. People often think that there is a gender-oriented difference 
because often people stick to this is for example how uh, Macron is leading France this is how Angela Merkel is leading Germany and then they try to figure out the difference based on their gender that is not the case it's um, of, of course because we often still have very stereotypical roles how people are brought up often female leadership is, is associated with being more more empathetic, um, have, having more empathy, focusing more on the people, while men often are more straightforward, more focused on the money. However, generalizing this has no backing in science. We still have huge numbers of people behaving like that, but that is due to the social construct of how we, we socialize our children, how we bring them up, how we tell them what their role in society is. A really complex issue, which goes far beyond leadership. Um, However, you shouldn't make decisions only based on gender, because when we talk about gender, we also have to talk about gender identity and gender is not only a spectrum, gender is a social construct. And that is, if we get into that topic, we most likely will have a discussion for a couple of hours from here. It, however, it True. is very important when you look at your And we will have customers. enemies online also. Yes. <laughs> I, I can live with that. I, I know that especially when you talk about gender identity, people immediately pop up and say, oh, this is all nonsense. Well, science tells you it's not nonsense. So when you as a leader say gender identity is nonsense, then you basically say, I don't stick to science. And that disqualifies you as a leader completely and you will fail. The question is not if, the question is only when. Just look at your customer base. You have a very diverse customer base, people with all kinds of genders, gender identities, different background, ethnicities, races. So when you want to serve a diverse customer base and you want to understand the diverse customer base, how could you possibly think that you understand a diverse customer base with a non-diverse leadership team? How do you want to do that? And this is, this is not possible because you will not see certain issues, bring a product to the market, and then realize the issues you, because you get the feedback that you sell very well to one group, but you don't sell at all to the other group. And I think when you launch a product today, you want to be as precise as possible with the first try, because otherwise you're going to have to catch up and correct your marketing, the campaigning, and that can lead to not only huge costs, but also huge problems. And still, when we look into senior leadership, Many people talk about diversity. Um, when I look on the CAC 40, uh, the top 40 companies in France boards, what is the percentage of women there? 10%, 5%? It is still very low. It is still very low. Yeah. And Zero. that is part of I the think issue. Maybe that one lately, but very low. Yeah. And that is, that is part of the issue. And of course, every single time I say that, someone will come up and say, oh, do you want to promote someone just because they're a woman? Well, I just give you an example from Germany. In Germany, for more than 20 years, basically throughout the whole leadership of Angela Merkel and her, her and the people ruling the country and leading the country before, for more than 20 years, the economy said, we're going to bring more diversity in the boardroom. Nothing happened. And after more than 20 years, 
now they are focusing on or they are they are looking at the consequence which means they will have a women's quota on the board most likely and of course people say quotas is it that great and of course quotas are not really great when you force people into a position there are often many Im implications is the person only here due to a quota maybe the person is not qualified these are these are the usual claims but let's face it when you promise someone for 20 years, you are going to change, but you don't. You should not be surprised when they implement countermeasures after you pretty much lied to them for two decades. True. Uh, Nils, you've been, uh, if I remember well, uh, the first European speaker who worked on the major American platform, right? Um, when I spoke at the American Speakers yeah. Association, I, I think I was not the first German, but I was the first German to be allowed to talk about the very delicate topic of, of speaker fees. I think I was not the first German, but uh, but, but I don't think it's relevant to, to to be the first, but I was one of the ones who, who got a proper main stage slot. I don't know if, if I was the first, but I, but I definitely know that I was the first who was allowed to talk about speaker fees, which is a very delicate topic. Of course, yeah, it's very, yeah. very, very delicate topic. Um, would you maybe tell us a little bit about your career as a speaker? Because we do have a lot of speakers who listen to our podcast. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, how did you become a, a leader in a speaking industry? It, it is very important, in my opinion, when you want to become leading in the industry, there, there is a certain phenomenon which we have in the speaking industry, which is which I always call creating speaker heroes. And speaker heroes are people who are very well known within the speaking association world, but are completely irrelevant outside of it. So people who often talk about something they have never done in life, uh, talk about something which they never de delivered in reality, but then they claim they are an expert. And what they also do is many people, and I, I mean, you were president of a French speaking association. You know how often speakers come along like, oh, Christine, can I be on main stage? Oh, Christine, I deserve to be on main stage. You will never get on main stage when you ask for it. When you go to the conferences, when you deliver quality, when you get engaged with people and they see that you can deliver substantial change of the game, which is based on science, facts and delivering results then sooner or later, people will consider you for main stage. I never asked for being on main stage. It was Shep Hyken of the American Speaking Association, who during your conference in Paris, where we were, I think, at the ESCP campus, um, he saw me speak there. Then he contacted me and said, would you speak in Washington? And I said, yes. And only six weeks before the conference, they told me and said, oh, by the way, it's not a workshop. It's not a breakout. You are going to be on main stage. I never asked for it. And I also think, let's face it, when you, when you say I deserve to be on main stage, that's entitlement thinking. And that is quite frankly appalling. People volunteer to run these associations and you say you deserve to be there. Who do you think you are? Also, when you ask to be on main stage, do you really think they will select you? Do you think that the Rolling Stones got to Wembley into the arena by saying, we're a great band, we deserve to be in Wembley? No, this, is not, this is not how anything works. You cannot push yourself on main stage. I know that there are offers on the market where you pay to speak. I think, quite frankly, these offers are pathetic. You are standing on stages where speakers talk to other speakers, often about speaking, an incestuous industry which 
which gets to a ridiculous level where people pay thousands of euros to speak somewhere. When you pay to speak, yeah, you should you never really be should. you should never be paying for for being on a stage. I mean, exactly. You know, when that you is, deliver, that is something that is something I often say to my to my delegates and to the people yeah. I coach. Yeah. So when you when you offer a professional service, but people don't pay you for your professional service. So I am also strongly opposed to speaking for free. I don't speak for free. Um, except for charities, because charities, they do good work. I like to contribute fundraising, great things. So 10 days per year, I give free speeches for charities, but for professional audiences, I get paid or they can't, they can't have me as a speaker. When you offer a professional service and people do not pay you for doing so, then you probably should check what's wrong with your offer. Because in many cases, your offer either isn't valuable enough or it, it doesn't deliver e enough insights or your sales and marketing process is just not good enough that people actually want to work with you. Besides that, speakers often are very focused on doing speeches only. And especially in a post-pandemic world, people need solutions and expertise. So you must be able, in my opinion, to deliver speeches, training, coaching, mentoring, consulting, project or interim management. The, the way of delivering the expertise is chosen by the client. Maybe they want to have you as a speaker. Maybe they want to have you as a coach. Maybe they want to have you as a consultant. Maybe they want to have you over there for a couple of weeks to tell them in practice how to do it. And when you say, I am a speaker only, when you are not let's say, in a senior age where you just want to do a bit on the side, when you are at a reasonable age in the industry and you say, I only speak about it, I don't deliver, that's I, for me. I agree with you. I think it's always yeah. a triangle, you know, a triangle where at the, at the top you have the speaking, which will allow you to actually sell your product, your online product and your, and your books and who would bring people in your cons cons consultancy. Yes, that's exactly. A, that's yeah. a multi multi revenue uh, kind of uh, triangle, and yes. I only think there's about maybe one percent speakers who only get uh, you know paid to speak hundred percent. Yes, they always I mean, have when you, for example, multiple do, revenue stream. Yeah, yeah. When you, for example, have something which is rather entertaining, which is a stage show, so you're basically either an actor or an entertainer. Of course, then speaking will will be your main income. But when you when you also and people probably have seen that now during the pandemic, when your only income stream is speaking, every crisis will hit you first. As soon as we have an economic crisis, the first one getting taken off the agenda is the expensive speaker. The last one to be booked digitally to speak online is an expensive speaker because people will focus on coaching or training or an online product expertise is a value to the market which offers sustainable solutions. The way how you deliver this is decided by the client. If you take the decision and make the decision that you say, I am only a speaker, you shouldn't be surprised that you most likely miss out on 90% of all income opportunities you could have had. But let's face it, many people also like to be speaker only because their knowledge, their skills, and their expertise isn't strong enough to fill a whole day of training or a couple of hours of coaching. That's why they like to speak only because 30 minutes on a stage with a rehearsed speech with which they've delivered hundreds of times. Today, they speak to BNP Paribas and tomorrow they're going to speak to an agricultural association and they say exactly the same, no matter if it's agriculture or finance, 
these speeches are useless, worthless, and in my opinion, in due course of the development we now have on the market, companies will not spend much money on these kind of services. No, I know, and that's they would, they would spend money on customized speeches. This is exactly. my experience. Yeah, it always has to be customized. I know that, and this is very frustrating. People often see, but that person gets booked for that kind of speech very often. It is very frustrating, especially for women and minorities. And I'm a, I'm, I'm part of the LGBT community, so I know this discrimination as well. There are men on the market who only get business due to their networks, or I think in French you say les réseaux, les réseaux, and that's an unfair advantage. But I think in in the re, in in the, in, the, in the very soon in the very very near future, with compliance and regulatory in place, this kind of les réseaux, the networks, I think that you cannot just run a business on uh, being well connected. You have to deliver proper value and not just a bunch of motivational one-liners. That's true, that's true. Uh, well, can you give us um, uh, your thoughts on how people can make a change right now as speakers? Because we are in a, in a situation now, the post-pandemic or kind of just the end post-pandemic, how can people really make a change when they speak? So it is really important that you are able to deliver your material online because um, online speaking came here to stay. People look at the not only the economic impact of bringing people in, but also on the environmental impact of, of, of bringing people in. Let's just assume you, you are from France. Let's just say we have a company and they do their conference and most likely they will do their conference in Paris. When you bring people in from uh, Nice, from Lyon, uh, from La Bretagne, all to Paris, and you have a couple of hundred people traveling, that has a huge carbon footprint, which, which will be here on the planet. A real game changer is, of course, because people also, many people are sick of business travel. No one, no one really misses business travel, ex except when you're one of these people who only define their life by posting Instagram, say, look at me, I'm at the lounge. And quite frankly, when that is your life, I feel reasonably sorry for you. Many companies now realize people like to work from their home. Statista, I just mentioned that in my podcast a couple of weeks ago. Statista, a very reliable source for statistics, they did a survey. How do people want to work in the future? More than half want to work from their home. One third wants to have um, wants to have a digital hybrid solution, so on-site and from home, only 2% want to go back to the office as they did before. And, when, and the second question was, when employers do not stick to that, uh, to, to that demand, what will people do? Two-thirds will look for a new job and just change to have a more flexible work solution. And the flexibility from the offices will affect the events industry and the conference industry. When you are a professional speaker, conférencier professionnel, then it means that you must be able to deliver your services in the format the client wants. When you say, my only format is on-site, in a conference room, at a local conference where I travel to and speak in front of an audience, you will face tough times because yeah. the market for that shrinks significantly and it's not coming back because people see the efficiency of online delivery when it's done well. You did a couple of keynote speaking online, of course, I assume. Yeah, during the pandemic. I now, I am now here 
I traveled once to London in, in last year, September, when the numbers were low and we thought we already made it through the pandemic. And I once traveled to Germany in December, but during the last March of last year, 13, 14, 15, during the last 15, 16 months, I uh, had four flights in total and the rest was delivered from exactly where I sit right now. And that, that also is very important. When, when people say I can't really afford the whole tech setup, I posted it on Facebook just a couple of weeks ago. My only setup is this is a notebook. I have a Microsoft Surface Go, which is not an expensive model. I have wired internet, but wireless will also work. And, and there we are. So when you have expertise, of course, when you do some sort of show, you might need more tech equipment to make it happen. But what you really need right now is strong expertise based on science and then offer tailored solutions to solve the issues from your actual true, or potential true. clients in the future. Yeah. Well, you can also use some a couple of um, technology um, apps. Have you ever heard about SparkUp? SparkUp is an app yeah, where you can actually interact, apps. which yeah, is quite, quite nice. And also another man named Ben Morsham, he's also offering, you know, online um, interaction where mm -hmm. he can actually grab people's emotion from the mm -hmm. face, which I find very interesting. This is going to be the future, of course, and this is where the game changes is, I think, to my opinion. Yeah, I think when you, when you, when you want to stick to a tool which you use online, always always answer the question does it have a real impact on the audience does it have a big advantage for the client because speakers are obsessed with what david newman called the shiny new object syndrome i remember when they said oh you have to be on periscope without periscope on twitter you're dead periscope disappeared after facebook copied exactly the same thing then they said you have to be on blab blab is the new meeting tool everything's happening on blab blab gone Clubhouse. Anyone had to be on Clubhouse. Clubhouse, Clubhouse, left, right and center. Uh, Lee Warren, a colleague and I from the UK, just recently talked to senior leaders. They didn't even know what the app is because Clubhouse turned out to be a platform where suddenly speakers who don't have bookings turn up to speak to other speakers. There, there might be a potential that you meet certain clients there. However, the download numbers of Clubhouse collapsed by 90% last month because now you have Twitter spaces and many other platforms will offer exactly the same. When you use something, be sure that it adds huge value, not to your ego, not to your personality, not to yourself, but for the client. I didn't True. join Clubhouse because I didn't see a value for my target audience. And so far, when I talk to speakers and say, could you deliver evidence what you made out of Clubhouse? Some people ran charity work, which is great. Some people did fundraising, amazing. Some people informed very well about LGBT issues, diversity, uh, how, to can you, how, how you can work online, amazing. But a lot of these events were speakers talking to speakers often about speaking. And as I said before, that's not really a market. That's an ancestors industry which is close to occupational therapy, but I don't want to call occupational therapy because occupational therapy actually has a value to someone doing it. So when there is a tool, so when I chose Zoom, I chose Zoom because it has an impact on my audience. It's easy to use. You only need a link, people log in, password, that's it. I've this been using Zoom for more than 10 years. 
people yeah. in France yeah. have had never heard about Zoom. I mean, they heard, they discovered wow. Zoom during the pandemic, but wow. uh, Zoom is a fantastic tool, and I think yeah. for me, it's the best tool ever. You can you can really use very very yeah, usable. Fully agree. Fully agree. Yeah. Um, my my very first online meeting tool was Illuminate beginning of the 2000s, where you only had audio channel and they always told you, you have to move the mouse arrow very slowly because it was so difficult to get the bandwidth to actually transport something. Yeah. Um, but I think Zoom came in reasonably a couple of years after and I am on Zoom nearly since day one. And it, it's, it's an amazing tool. But I think I was the first one in France using it. Maybe, <coughs> I, 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 I don't know if they track or record who, who, who was the first using it. I think it is important. Every tool you choose, does it have a huge benefit for the audience, for your client, for their organizations? Many speakers chose tools based on, I like it, or anyone uses it. That's not a proper reason how you make a business decision. Business decisions are focused on benefits for the customer, and also, can you make a profit out of it? Because when you spend thousands of euros on a tool which pushes your services into the, into the below zero profit area, pointless, because you yeah, have to make a, money at the That's end. a very nice conclusion to the Game Changes show club. <laughs> really, <laughs> it is. Well, Niels, it has been a great pleasure uh, spending the, that half an hour with you. And uh, thank you so much for being with us on this Game Changers Club show. And uh, well, uh, dear listeners, see you the, for the next, uh, the next show. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much for having me here. Always happy to help.